This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Network, and we're taking one of our procurement potpourri, you know, uh, periodic uh, taking a look at what's going on in federal uh, procurement. And we are approaching the end of the summer. So it's a good time for Jason and I to catch up. Jason, welcome to the show. You know, Roger, this is one of my favorite times of the year when, when I get to potpourri it up with you. Uh, yes, absolutely. There's nothing better than a little potpourri. <laughs> so um, so where, do you, where would you like to start? Uh, I noticed, I note that there's a new... Uh, nominee for the administrator for federal procurement uh, policy at OFPP, Binyam Gabri. You're close. Yep. You think you hit it? (laughs) What about, you know, what's interesting is, number one, let's give kudos to the administration for actually nominating someone, uh, you know, pretty quickly, right? And if you look back, I went back to the Obama folks and they nominated Dan Dan Gordon in October of 2010. So um, I'm sorry. October of 2009, so uh, about 10 months after the election, after the, nom- uh, the election started. So that was, uh, uh, so this is before them. And when you look back at the Trump administration, you know, Dr. Wooten, Dr. Michael Wooten didn't get nominated for almost two and a half years into it. So uh, this position too often, I think at least, does not get the credence it deserves, doesn't get the attention it deserves. So let's start with the good news that, that there's a nominee. <clears throat> now, the, we won't call it bad news, Roger, because that's not fair, but the maybe less exciting news is who is this guy and is he really qualified to be OPP administrator? If you look back at the last dozen of them or so, they've all had some real deep experience in federal procurement. And Mr. Gibbery doesn't. He comes from the consulting world. He was last at Central Federal Services. He worked at McKinsey. He does have government experience, which I think is really important to have both private sector and public sector experience. But the question is, what, what, what is he walking into and, and how, how much does he know about procurement? Because, Roger, you spent, what, 52 years in procurement? And you, you still are learning something. something every and, day. Count, and counting, Jason, and counting. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's... Yeah, I think that's a that's a consideration, but it also could turn around and be a strength, right? For someone who has uh, deep and broad management experience, um, you know, both in the government and in the private sector, um, to come in and not be sort of uh, you know predisposed to particular aspects of the procurement system and just kind of take a fresh look. I think there's. You know, it actually, in some ways, it might be refreshing change and a little different perspective might be good and healthy for the procurement system. Um, you know, it, it's often said we, we, you know, we keep having the same conversation over and over for 30 years and like, or 52, depending on your, how long you've been around. Um, and perhaps like someone coming in who has a different perspective is, is, is it's, you know, could be a, a game changer or something 
really positive and getting people to look at uh, the procurement system from a different perspective. So one of the things I did when, when he was named, I went and reached out to former OPP administrators and I talked to folks like Rob Burton, Joe Jordan, Ann Rung, Angel Styles, Dr. Wooten, and, and asked them for their opinion and kind of their, their feedback. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was working on this story, Roger, is, is there's a lot of similarities between Mr. Gebri and former federal CIO Suzette Kent. When uh, the Bush administration named Suzette Kent as the federal CIO, a lot of us looked at her LinkedIn profile and said, why, why is she the federal nominee, you know, nominee to be a federal CIO? What's her background? And she turned out, and I put this in as one of the top three, top four federal CIOs in the last 20 years. Uh, she, she understood people. She understood how to manage people. And she did not try to get into the minutia of technology. So uh, I think there's a lot of similarities here about uh, for Binyam Gebri, who could come in and just manage the process, but not really worry about the minutia and let the good people at OFPP, like Matthew Blum and, and, and Leslie Field and the like, really take on the, the, the heavy lifting of, of, of OFPP and federal procurement policy, but he just manages the process and, and gets the, if you will, herds the cats in a, in a really positive direction. But one of the things that stood out to me is that when I talked to the, the different folks, they all said something different, but, but the, the a common theme that came up was, was trust your staff, like uh, the aforementioned Leslie Field, Matt, Matt Blum, and, and, and Joni Newhart and others, but also understand what your role is. Like Rob Burton said, carefully read the OFPP Act. It's, you know, it's back from 1974, but it still is very significant today. Uh, other people talked about um, understanding really the, the, priority, the prioritization of the initiatives and where you fit in and how you can play. So a lot of good advice. And I think um, uh, Joe Jordan, though, made me laugh. His best advice uh, he got was, you can never win in a congressional hearing. It's like arguing with your parents. So try to earn respect and then get out with anyone looking bad. And if you don't know the answer to a question, don't guess. And I thought that was excellent advice for whomever is uh, potentially not just OPP, but any political position. Yeah, it's with your parents or perhaps uh, your your spouse even. That, that that That's good advice, right? Or not? <laughs> D- definitely your spouse. <laughs> right, right. That's right. Um, so um, what else is on your radar screen? What else uh, do you want to talk about? So I think there's a lot going on, Roger. I think I think the, the next place to go, because I think it's important that there's an OPB administrator and, you know, there's a whole heavy lift that they're going to get, he's going to get as soon as he gets confirmed by the Senate, which is, you know, made in America. They have a new office in, in OMB. They've had, they've put out an executive order. They put out a... Uh, guidance and and now they're putting out proposed rule no, uh, uh, proposed notice of rulemaking. There's a lot happening and I and, and I think you and I were both on the call uh, a couple of weeks ago about made in America and, and small business impacts. And um, I have to say that there's a lot of effort going forward. And the one thing they still haven't answered yet is the impact on commercial IT, the uh, COTS IT. I think that's that's a big question for me at least, and I think a lot of people in the federal community. Yeah, the, the, the thing about uh, Buy America uh, approach, it's it's a it's a interesting dynamic. Or when you you the the framework really in the in the law dates from the 1930s. So we're talking about you know a statute um, and a framework that's you know 90 years old, close to 90 years old, um, and at a time when the economy is in a fundamentally different place than in the 1930s. 
um, in terms of supply chain and all those things. And, you know, the goals are, you know, it, it, everybody supports the goals. The question is, is this, is that statute, you know, the broad brush approach, um, how, how effective is it going to be? Is going to be, the observers are going to be watching. And also, are there any unintended consequences coming from this? The supply chain of today is far different from the supply chain of, uh, of 1930s. And even supply chains within different industries have different focuses. And, um, and, there's, and there's issues of security and availability and domestic manufacturer. And how you work through all those to get to where you want to go um, is going to be an interesting thing to watch. And I, and I will say this too, I think, you know, the demand side for the federal government is one thing, but at the same time, I think policymakers need to recognize that the federal government buys a lot of stuff, but for traditional commercial firms, you know, it represents less than 1% of their typical revenue. Is that really going to drive, you know, manufacturing um, in the United States based on federal demand? I think, uh, there, you know, on the, on the supply side, you know, the manufacturer side, there's going to have to be more done in terms of, you know, uh, policy, creating incentives, creating uh, the ability to hire American workers and invest in America. It's, it's not, it can't just be done um, on the demand side. And I think people recognize that. I think the administration recognizes that as well. What's interesting to me about this whole effort so far has been the discussion about the waiver process. And, and I'll have to be honest, Roger, I probably haven't paid attention to how the waivers work or the fact that even uh, that how often people ask for waivers or what the waivers are for. And I don't think it's stuff we've actually covered because it's just, it only comes up when we're talking about specific, uh, I think, stories maybe. Uh, but but not necessarily often. Like I remember years ago, Roger, the whole Barry Amendment and where were the DOD buying berets and whether they're made in America or made in China. And that, that led to a whole uh, set of new uh, regulations and laws. That That's something we would cover, but but we would never really cover the waiver process itself. And I think that's going to be very interesting because GSA is putting out a new website to track waivers. In fact, at, at this Made in America event, GSA talked about how we have not done any sort of waivers at all this year. And they're very proud of that. And, and, and with a good reason, GSA buys a lot of things. So they're, they're really pushing toward uh, to meet the administration's goals. Is the waiver process from your experience, is that a big deal or how often is it used? Do you, do you have, did you have any experience of that back in government? Um, we, I never actually personally worked on a waiver of the Buy American Act. I worked on uh, you know, on examining waiving the Trade Agreements Act for in the case that, um, for example, at the time, I think it was ceiling fans. There were no ceiling fans made in a eligible country in the world, right? Um, and so how was the government going to buy ceiling fans if the Trade Agreements Act applied to the to a particular contract? And, and you know, we never really kind of worked it out on a global scale in terms of like applying it to a program like the schedules, but I think on individual cases and individual procurements, the way the regulations read at the time, that was became more of the focus. And that just raises another interesting, you know, issue because with the focus on China, one of the yeah, the differences actually between the Buy American Act and the Trade Agreements Act is under the Buy American Act, you can still buy eligible uh, product buy products from China after you've applied 
you know, the evaluation differential, you know, that uh, I think is going up to 20% for large businesses and 30% for small businesses, meaning if there's a foreign offer uh, for of a product uh, that's low, um, you add 20% uh, to the price if it's a, the American made from a large business is the next low and 30% if the next low is a small business American made product. Um, but you can still buy a Chinese product under the trade agreements act Chinese products are not eligible, right? Cause it's the go, go, no go criteria. Um, so, and, and with all that focus on Chinese, that's why the GSA, uh, waived uh, the TAA with regard to uh, personal protective equipment and, and masks and that sort of thing during the height of the, you know, the pandem- pandemic uh, this past spring, uh, because in fact they needed to get and last year because they needed to get stuff from uh, from China uh, because that's where it was being made and the TAA applied. So, just all kinds of interesting aspects to. You know, buy America to buy international. We haven't even talked about buy America versus buy allied. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that dynamic uh, when we come back. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason, executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're doing our procurement potpourri for the summer 2021. Um, and Jason, uh, you know, on the break, I mentioned Buy Allied versus Buy America. That's kind of a ongoing sort of debate and discussion, both on the Hill and amongst policymakers. Um, you have any thoughts on that? I, I think one of the big questions that comes up time and again is this idea of what's the impact on Buy America if, we, if, we, if they expanded out to Buy Allied. And, and that came up during that, the, the discussion just recently uh, that uh, OMB held, that, that GSA was part of. And one person brought up is that, are you really sending money out the door? Because if you're really focused on Buy America and you're sending money to the UK or Australia or Germany or France or, wh- or whatever allied nations we're talking about, is that really uh, achieving the goals of the administration? And, and again, I, I think... It, there's a lot of depends, right? It depends on what you're buying. You, you brought up the ceiling fan example is a really good one. If, if there's a company like, and I'm making this up, Roger, but someone like a, a German company like Siemens only makes this part for an industrial control system that the Army Corps of Engineers needs, then, then buying Allied is going to be better than buying that piece from Germany. I mean, I'm sorry, from China, if that piece is, is an example a little bit more expensive or, or, or that's still going to benefit the U S in, in some way for, for partnership and trade. But there's other things like maybe steel or maybe uh, uh, you know, textiles where you would how that, that maybe it's cheaper to buy it outside the U S but it's better to keep it inside the U S and pay a little more. I mean, to me, that's what this comes down to is well, how much are you willing to pay? And if the government is not getting the quote unquote best deal, are we as taxpayers okay with that? Um, I know I am. <laughs> the question is, are others? Right. right. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. And I didn't even you mentioned in Canada and Mexico and as part of the North America supply chain and so interrelated in production. What does it mean, you know, when you're talking about the, the um, you know, the trade agreements between the free trade agreements between Canada, the United States and Mexico 
versus buying America. How do you sort that all out? But you also made a, make a great point is it's strategic. What is strategically important to the United States? What the Biden administration, when the executive order and uh, you know identified rare earth minerals, um, uh, computer chips, electric batteries, and pharmaceuticals, medical equipment as you know key areas where. Uh, you know, the buy American, you know, buy, buy, buy American generally and investing in supply chains to support those capabilities are long-term strategic goals for this country. And they, as they very well should be. Um, and how do you achieve that um, is, is, is the challenge, right? And again, you get back to, you know, the investments and creating incentives on the supply side, the manufacturer side, uh, with support on the demand side. At the same time, you know, you know, things you think are relatively simple become critically important, like PPE, right, and masks, and where those are made, and you know, making them in the United States, you wouldn't think would be a you know a national security issue, but in fact, it turns out they they are when you have a pandemic and you or you have to be prepared for the next pandemic, um, and how we address that moving forward. Um, you know, is, is a challenge. Um, and it'll be interesting to watch both on the procurement side and on the policy side, just from an incentive perspective. So let's turn to, uh, to GSA, um, and what's going on there, uh, Jason, my favorite topic, right? Uh, yes, it is. So. We, we could talk the entire show just on our friends at GSA and they would not be happy with us if we spent the next, uh, half hour talking about GSA. But uh, I, you know, one thing that, that I, has stood out to me over the last uh, you know, couple months, if you will, is uh, obviously the, the administrator, Robin Carnahan, got, got approved by the Senate. She's been in place now for a couple months. I uh, was lucky enough to, uh, to land an interview with her. And, and I think she's in, in, that, in that learning mode. She's learning about not just acquisition because she has some experience there, but the public building service and all that's happening with the, the future federal workforce. And uh, um, I think there's a lot of things that, that we're going to see maybe uh, you know, in the fall, early, early winter from GSA in terms of how they're going to push forward on their priorities. I think the one thing that stood out to me from what, what my interview with Administrator Carnahan was, the, her real focus was, was customer service and customer experience. And it's not new, right? This is not a new thing for GSA. They've been working on it for years and years and years. And, and obviously under former Administrator Emily Murphy, they've made great strides. You, you've seen the surveys that, that they've put out, the data from that over the last several years. But I think she's really trying to say that she wants a great buying experience for the customers. She wants an industry that is, finds it easy to work with GSA. So I think that those notes are the right ones to start off. And it's interesting that that's her path Versus if you looked at maybe other administrators, they were more focused on things like, I'm going to implement this type of change, or I'm going to uh, uh, address more very specific categories or specific topics. She was just like, took more of a 50,000 foot view, which again, going back to our OFPP conversation earlier, is maybe a good thing sometimes. You need someone who has that bigger vision. Right. Um yeah, I think a customer focus, um, you know, GSA has put in place uh, a number of, um, you know, foundational sort of changes, whether it's schedules consolidation and they're working on their e-systems as we speak to, you know, to improve those and improve the customer experience. So, but let's talk about you know, the com- customer experience in the context of 
GSA's uh, portfolio of contracts. I'm particularly thinking like Astro was just awarded. Uh, thoughts on that, uh, where Polaris is headed, and also the services, Mac. Wow, where to start, right? Well, let's start with Astro. I think that's an important award for, for two reasons. Uh, number one, it's the first one of the Section 876 Authority, uh, un- the unpriced master schedule, which Roger, you and I have talked about, I've written about, I've asked GSA about. That it has to be the future of all, all, and I want to underline that, Roger, multiple work contracts. Uh, the price has to happen at the task order level. There is, is no reason, and I'm sure somebody will call you to complain that I'm saying this, Roger, so get ready for the complaints. There is no reason to worry about price at the master contract level. There's just no reason for it. But I'll stop there and let you tell me why I'm wrong. Well, one of the issues in the schedules context that, you know, I hear customers and I heard it when I worked at GSA is they do rely on the price at the contract level to, to help streamline the process, let's say, and it, because GSA has determined the price fair and reasonable in that context, it makes the, you know, the subsequent competition just a little bit easier to address from a pricing perspective. Obviously there's you know, they're supposed to compete, try to get better pricing, but they build, but the feedback I've gotten previously is they build on a foundation of GSA Howarding have done that. That being said, you know, in the context of Astro and other contracts, um, you know, you, you, and even in the schedules, you're spot on, spot on in the context that the price at the, is determined by competition for requirements at the task order level. And I think Astro, um, is a success just from the standpoint of awarding it using the 876 authority. And I think it will, in fact, lead to um, greater competition and value at the task order level. So let me, let me ask you, because this is, again, my outsider's perspective, but why, is, why does the cost matter at the schedule level? If you're qualified, right, if GSA determines that you can do the work and then you bid on that work and your costs are... 20% higher than your, the nearest comp- competition, you're just not going to win a contract. So, so who cares if you're fair and reasonable because the competition at the task order level will determine really how fair and reasonable you are. And Roger, you know as much as, much as anyone that, that the, the prices of a GSA schedule are the, are the ceiling and you only come down from the ceiling. Okay, for one widget, I will pay $1. But if you buy 1,000 widgets, you'll pay 50 cents. Well, why is $1 fair and reasonable when no one buys one widget? You always buy 1,000 widgets or 5,000 widgets. I mean, I think it's an old way of thinking that would behoove the government, and I'll say not just GSA, to really take a step back and say, how are things bought in in the real world? And and you don't buy them on one-offs and price them as one-offs anymore. Well, you know, I'm... Contracting officers like to see a price. I'm just, I'm not, I'm just, you know, you've asked me a question and the pricing is used part of their market research when they use the GSA schedules in particular. So that, and and then that, that market research and that pricing builds a foundation for when their evaluation of the subsequent price. And that's kind of one of the positive benefits that uh, overriding part of positive benefits that, I've heard when I was at GSA and I, you know, to your, to your point, I mean, are there more, is there opportunity for more training and a different approach? Yes. I think there's room. And I think actually the eight, uh, Astro and use of 876 will help inform GSA, 
you know, about his programs overall and how effective that use of that, that particular tool is. So I think there's more to come on that down the road. Fair enough. I, I know that my, uh, as I said, I'm only looking at it from an outsider's perspective, but uh, it just feels like uh, it's, it's time to, to relook at it. I mean, that really was um, the idea behind, you know, the government-wide acquisition contracts. There's been a lot of talk recently uh, about, is it time to relook at that approach too? So I think this is all part of the broader discussion that's, uh, I think, going to happen, maybe led by our new OFPP administrator once he gets confirmed, right? Oh, uh, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Oh, the administrator GSA as well. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So we, you've talked about Astro. What about Polaris? I think that's the one that there's a lot of interest in across the community. And, and obviously GSA released some recent Q and A's uh, after they released the draft solicitation. And, and I think one of the things that, that is always comes up is how is the process going to work? How many words are going to be made? I think there's still all those questions that industry always wants to know. And GSA has done a pretty good job of communicating it so far. And, you know, I give them obviously kudos to release the Q and A's and keep people involved. I mean, I think a lot of folks are taking a half a step back and, and going, okay, well, what's happening with uh, the NITAC and CISP4 and all the challenges that they've had, you know, is GSA going to learn from that Polaris um, uh, is GSA going to learn from that experience with Polaris? And, and, and that, that's obviously, we don't know, but, but we hope so. And, and um, you know, I, I think that's the next big GWAC that people are going to follow. Yeah. Uh, well, Polaris, I mean, one of the, I mean, chief features of Polaris that unlike CISP4, CISP4 is that Polaris is a separate, you know, standalone small business uh, vehicle, right? CISP4, um, you know, did a 180 and moved away from the idea of having two separate contracts. And I think, you know, many in industry see that as, you know, as a step back for that particular program over the long run. And I think part of the, the challenges that you're seeing at NIH in implementing it is the fact that they've combined it into one. You know, one of the things that uh, we've always heard is that simple is, is good. There's power in simplicity. If you have a separate vehicle that stood up for small businesses, it's much easier from an acquisition planning perspective to get to that vehicle real quickly. You know, the set aside, you know, the recertification, that sort of thing has already been dealt with. You don't have to certify in every task order at that point. That's a benefit for small businesses and small businesses trying to grow through a five-year period. Um, It's just a powerful platform, and it also makes a huge policy and public statement uh, embracing small business because you have a separate vehicle that's specifically dedicated to small businesses. So I think that's, you know, something that, uh, you know, industry communicated to, to NIH and they chose to move in a different direction. And I think it's, you see in some of the results right now with, in that regard. Um, so, so it's, so Polaris is complementary, be complementary to the Alliant program and then the follow on to Alliant as well. And, uh, the question that also comes up around Polaris is GSA, you know, Alliance Small Business was a, was a contract that never really got off the ground. It was just mired in protests. How is GSA going to avoid that same problem with Polaris? And again, Roger, I'll go back to the 876 and Astro. They had no protests. And if you look at how many contractors they let on, maybe that's part of the reason. Oh, you know, nearly everyone who was qualified got on because they weren't worried about the price. You know, I, well, I, I mean, I mean, just to be clear, there were over 600 offers 
they awarded 377 contracts. It's not like everybody got on and they only had a, they had a limit in each pool of 45. Yeah. So that's, that's much more like, uh, you know, the current Oasis contract or Alliant than it is like the GSA schedules where, you know, uh, you know, you, you submit a fair and reasonable price and have some experience and you can get on that contract vehicle. And so it was a bit different, Jason, to, to be fair. Uh, was, wasn't debating that that wasn't different. I was just saying like they got through the protest period. They seemed to do it right. I think one of the key things here is how to create a vehicle that is going to ensure that it can go forward. Cause small, a lot of small business got hung up in protests and, you know, I think the issue for me, again, outsider looking in is there's no reason if you're, if you're minimally qualified, you, you, you let them on. I know you disagree with that, but uh, uh, I think that's the way to avoid the protest. And then, Hey, Roger, you know where the competition happens? Task order level. So Jason, yeah, I have to disagree with any of this. So, so we turn it into a debate. I like this. Um, so, you know, f- first of all, I, I, you know, I, that kudos to the Astro procurement team. They put together a great acquisition plan. They put out an RFP, a sound RFP, and they did a great job executing on, on it. To me, that makes the point that you can actually execute on big IDIQs where the stakes are really high because uh, that's, you know, that's a multi-billion dollar over time uh, contract vehicle that's going to support the Department of Defense. So that's a big deal. And it's a big deal that GSA is that successful. And I think if you ask the folks at Astro who put it in place, the keys, the huge key was effective communication and approach and really giving, you know, industry and individual companies a sense of where they fit going into the acquisition process. Uh, I think there's lessons learned there that could translate into Polaris or other major IDIQ contracts. And I think the point there is that, yes, you can have success. You can put one of these vehicles in place. And and as to, you know, the type of contract, I you know, just as, as someone who's been at GSA for a long time, been around GSA, just a portfolio approach of you have the entry level vehicle, the GSA schedules, you know, that does a good 20, over $20 billion in services, whether it's IT professional on an annual basis, commercial item contract um, is a very effective tool for entry into the market, especially for small business, you know, and you have built around that a portfolio of contracts that um, are based on a different acquisition pros, best value uh, vetting at the contract level, a smaller pool of contractors, a different management approach to them. And you have a set of customers who will like that kind of vehicle as well. So so I think it's GSA to the, you know, the administrator focusing on the buying experience of the customer. GSA needs to have a portfolio of different type, these different type of vehicles in place because you, because not every customer is the same, right? And they've, they've had success there. If you look at um, the ITG wax, you know, it's close to a $10 billion collectively when you take a lion and all the small business ones. And then you have this uh, Oasis, which is a $10 billion uh, uh, contract vehicle with the small business uh, contract and the large business. Um, and then you have the schedules program, which did 35, $36 billion in total last year. So you have that portfolio. And I think that's a great customer experience and is proven as such at GSA. And I know we're up on the break because when we come back, we'll actually talk about Oasis and the services, Mac. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. And Jason, um, we're talking the GSA portfolio in the last segment. And I think we, the one we hadn't covered yet is the Services Mac and Oasis. So I'll follow on to Oasis and um, your thoughts, observations. I think there's still a lot of questions out there. I, I had a conversation with Sonny Hashmi not too long ago. I think uh, maybe it was at your, your conference, your, your spring conference. And I think one of the things he, that he talked about uh, when I brought up the services, Mac, is there no decisions have been made. And then about the, 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 the path forward of how they're going to go about it, what's going to be part of it, how they're, gonna, how they're looking at this. Uh, new multiple acquisition contract to, for, for services to kind of replace Oasis down the road. And I think you're starting to see some pieces come together very slowly. They had a, a services Mac industry day about a month or so after your conference, maybe a month and a half. And they're, they're doing the right things to reach out to industry and asking the questions. What I would offer is it's still not quite clear about how this contract will be different than what already exists and why that it needs to be different. I, I get this idea that there's some challenges around contract types that maybe you can't do on schedule, but you can do with a multiple work contract. And I get this idea that they want to be um, a little more innovative and, and, and make it easier to add more companies and not going through these on ramps and off ramps and, and the challenges that, that got hung up in protests. I, I think, I think all those aren't necessarily bad things, but it's just kind of, unclear. I, I think what happens too often with, and, and we'll, blame, we'll, we'll throw this on GSA, but I think you can see this on at DOD and, and other places is it's easier to do something new than to change the current existing policies, regulations. And I think that's maybe a little bit what's happening here. Fixing the schedule contracts to allow cost plus contracts or some other form of contracting beyond, you know, um, uh, uh, time and materials and, and uh, um, I'm losing the other one, Roger, time and materials and labor hours All right. uh, is maybe harder than doing a new contract where you can just start with cost plus type contracts and other, other similar ones. Um, yeah, that might, I mean, I think that's what you might hear from some in GSA, um, but it, it is an interesting um, dynamic. And, you know, although no decisions have been made, um, you know, GSA certainly is, a, is approaching this and moving forward. And what the messaging to industry is that there's only one way forward. And it's a way that's been described uh, multiple times as a, basically I would characterize it as a, essentially a new schedule program um, to, 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 you know, to, I guess, same as the old schedule program in some ways, um, you know, you, you know, you're going to have continuous open seasons. You're going to have thousands of contractors. You're going to have a, you know, a different bar, a lower bar of entry than a best value, you know, highly, uh, technically, uh, qualified type of evaluation approach that was used in Astro, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, and then basically fundamentally from a cost from a contract type uh, perspective, you, you build those things into it. And the, then, then the only real difference between this, this proposed services Mac and the GSA schedules is cost reimbursement contracting. And so what, uh, you know, to the point about focusing on the customer, I, I would submit this is going to confuse the customer 
And, you know, many in the industry are concerned that in, in the long run, this will actually increase, con it, first of all, it duplicates the schedules like 90%, let's say. Uh, secondly, it could likely lead to increased contract duplication moving forward because agencies are going to be confused. They're not going to see, you know, that there's those customers who like the Oasis model, who like the Alliant model of, you know, a high bar to entry into that contract and a certain high level small businesses, high level large businesses cap from a capability perspective and a, and a different type management to the contract than, than the GSA schedules. And then there's folks who love the GSA schedules. There's both. Uh, but essentially, if you're going to just the GSA schedules, you know, for services, you know, in two different versions of the same thing, um, there's a big risk of, of confusing the customer and what the unintended consequences uh, of that will be are, uh, are, 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 are of concern, I think, to lots of folks out there, both customers and, and industry partners at GSA. And I think part of the reason that's why GSA is doing these industry days, putting out the drafts. They are trying to communicate their plan and their idea and get feedback. I think to your point, Roger, the question is, what will they do with that feedback? How will it impact and change their approach? Uh, and, and is their approach already in, in stone or is it more of a pencil and paper that can be erased and redone and, and gone over? I think that that's where a lot of the concerns come from. And, and if the Oasis program is doing so well and it's one of the the most popular one uh, multiple work contracts in government why fix something that's not necessarily broken right right and 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 i and just on the issue of the way forward is so that you know the notice to proceed to this was um issued back during the trump administration uh towards the end um and you know the really all, all all that's been articulated is a particular is one particular version of what it should look like and that version doesn't look anything like to your point the old oasis contract right with they're, they're also going to merge a big it's merge small and large businesses under one contract whereas oasis had oasis small business and oasis unrestricted Oasis small business, you know, 40% of the total volume, dollar volume under the entire Oasis program went to small businesses. And that's a testament to customers liking a standalone small business contract vehicle that they can go to very efficiently and effectively acquisition planning. It's easier for the customer to deal with. It's easy for the contractors. At the same time, you know, you have the entry level for small businesses over at the GSA schedules that, you know, also do you know, um, include a lot of small businesses and provides them an opportunity access to the federal market. So you have that balance there uh, that has worked very effectively uh, for the customer. And you have a $10 billion Oasis program and you have a $10 billion professional services schedule. And they're two different vehicles. And now all of a sudden, you're going to take that one $10 billion vehicle and make a look essentially just like the other $10 billion vehicle. Again, that's where I think the customer is definitely going to be confused. And I know industry is, 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 um, um, you, you know, has questions about it as well. So. I, I think going forward, I mean, I think there's a lot of here. This is one of those areas where GSA will be spending a lot of time communicating or trying to, and I think it's, it's, it's a matter, it's going to be really incumbent upon them to reach out to folks like Coalition of Government Procurement and other associations, but also ensure that they're talking about it and, and, and you know, how are they using the feedback, offering 
folks like me, okay, we heard this feedback and here's the change we made. Like, so, so it's clear that, that you're not going to agree with everything, but at least you considered it and, and then there was some impact. Uh, I think that that's going to be something that a lot of people are going to follow to, to see how this continues to evolve. Yeah, so, well, Jason, you know, we're up on a break right now. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussion. Uh, perhaps uh, talk maybe uh, maybe a little more CIOSPS4, CIOSP4. I can't even say it. It's a, it doesn't trip over my tongue all that well. Uh, and just to cl- take a look across uh, the e-commerce uh, platform, we'll need to talk about that real b- briefly. GSA issued... Uh, a new report just recently. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of the Federal News Network. And uh, Jason, um, I mentioned COSP4. Let's just take a, you know, a couple observations on that. I'll start with you first, and then we'll move on to the e-commerce platform. I'm thinking back over the last 25 years that I've been in the market, Roger, and I'm, I'm finding it difficult to find a procurement that was so <sighs> troubled, so difficult to get out, You know, to go from final RFP to bids being due. I'm sure there have been some, I, I, I have not followed every single procurement up close. So I'm sure that there are things that, that I didn't know about that happened, but this one in recent memory just seems to be full of, of fits and starts and it's unclear why. And I know the frustration from industry was, was incredible. Uh, you know, hearing from, from the, the attorneys, the procurement attorneys, the, the number of bid protests that have been filed, the frustration on that I saw on LinkedIn about, you know, changing due dates and, and proposal due dates are, are, you know, changed in the last minute. And a lot of calls for, for, G, for NIH, NITAC to take a, a big step back and pause and do a 30-day pause or a 45-day pause and fix the problems and then come back out with a, with a final RFP and, and go through that bid process again. Uh, I'm a little perplexed by it because NITAC generally has had a really good reputation over the last decade plus with CIOSP3 and other contracts, uh, you know, rarely have stories and or complaints about NITAC about they're not doing this what right or they're having these problems. So I think a lot of it is surprising and I'm not sure where it comes from. And I'm a little surprised that given all the challenges that there was not more attention being paid by Capitol Hill or more attention paid by the aforementioned OFPP because this is a major GWAC. So right. it was a, it was an interesting saga to watch and surprising. And uh, I think frustrating for a lot of people in the, in the community. Well, I think the saga is going to continue on for a fair or fair amount of time, uh, Jason. And I would just pick up on, on your comment, um, you know, just a couple things. So, when you extend a due date for, you know, receipt of proposal 15 minutes or so or less than an hour before the due date, you, you, you know, in the real world, like, you know, the majority of most companies have already submitted their proposal, right? So, and if you've made changes and then you extend it for another week, what, what, what are you really doing? And is it, 
it creates uncertainty, right, uh, from from a management perspective when things like that happen. And yes, I think I've never seen such you know industry uh, frustration um, with the you know overall conduct of you know the procurement to date. Um, and that begs the question: Where is OMB? You know, uh, uh, NIH can't operate this procurement without a designation from OMB, an executive agency designation for acquisition of uh, information technology on a government-wide basis. And you know, whether or not they played any role in you know addressing some of these issues or not, or just you know, what are the conditions of the you know delegation of that authority? Uh, the designation as executive agent would be interesting to see. Um, and I think that goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Sorry to jump in, but OPP has got to play that bigger role. And I think this was a case where for whatever reason, either they didn't want to or hesitant to, or didn't feel like they could jump in and, and, and really play a, a bigger management role. So hopefully, right. Binyam Gebre can, can play that role in, in some ways. And when you have a challenge like, like CIOs before, he can stop, everyone take a half a step back or a full step back and let's continue. Well, right, and there's a business case process that you go through and you do need to do a lots of paperwork to justify your executive agent designation. I was at GSA when the first ones were done back in the 90s and it's involved into a, quite a process. And it seems to me part of that process is what's the acquisition strategy? How are you gonna execute and manage that? To, to you know to, to streamline and efficiently effectively put the contract in place and um, you know I, you know that's an, again an area where OMB could play a positive role because it has that statutory authority for the executive agent designation. So let's move on to e-commerce uh, and GSA just issued uh, a report uh, around um, its decision not to uh, pilot. Uh, the e-commerce model or the e-procurement model. And for those listening, just to go back, you know, GSA Section 846 authorized GSA to put put in place e-commerce platform, and I use e-commerce more generally. Uh, and GSA identified three different types of marketplaces. An e-marketplace, which, you know, folks uh, could think about as like an Amazon uh, platform, and they they did do a pilot established contracts with Amazon, with uh, Fisher Electronic, and with Overstock uh, for that pilot. And then there were two other types. The e-commerce platform is a platform for a company like post its own product, like any all the companies out there doing business have their own website where you can go order their products, you know, whether it's Brooks Brothers or Macy's or, you know, or office supply companies, whoever, they have their website. You go there, you place your order, you're buying it from them. That's kind of the e-market, e-commerce model. And lastly is the e-procurement model, which you could think about as business software that helps you do an acquisition like Ariba or, you know, Trivago. You go out there, you use it to get you the best price. You can put business rules and parameters on, around it. And, you know, the report here, um, you know, basically explained GSA's rationale as to why they uh, dis- are deciding not to pilot the e-commerce model or the e-procurement model. Do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, it was a lo- long introduction, but it takes a while to actually explain, to explain it. it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think there's two things that stood out to me in that, in reading that report and, and Roger, since, uh, um, I'm going to be writing about this report. I've put questions to GSA, so I'm hopeful to have some answers back in, in the near future. What stood out to me around this is 
they weren't even willing to try it. They just said too expensive and they weren't willing to even try a small pilot or a, a even some sort of proof of concepty, you know, like let's just do one part of GSA to use this something where they could, you know, kind of keep costs down. Cause I think we all can be appreciative of the fact that if something's going to cost a ton of money to test and it's maybe, maybe it's not worth the, the squeeze, the juice is not worth the squeeze. Right. So I think that that was a little disappointing. And, and the second piece of this is, I think it goes back to something that you and I have talked about quite often over the last several years is, were they ever going to test it? Did they ever think about it? Did they ever really come to this idea of, we settled on the e-marketplace approach and then and that's all we're going to do from the beginning, even though Congress and others have had told them you need to do more than just one. So I, I think there's a lot of disappointment in that. And I, I think that their way forward report, the other report that they put out was lacking kind of some serious detail that I think we, we should expect to see from, from their report and their idea. Um, I, I just want to go to, their report real quick. And one thing that, that highlighted to me was the, the, we know that the Amazon business Fisher scientific overstock government have all been awarded this proof of concept. And Roger, I had a conversation with one of the three just recently and they, they kindly asked me not to refer to it as a proof of concept. They said it's a pilot, which I thought that was kind of funny too, but here and there, it's been a slow start for this. And I think the pandemic is partly because of that. And I think that there's a big push for really uh, how this initiative will do this year and into 2022. And GSA has asked for this to be permanent. So I think GSA has seen the benefits and, and think they see the benefits of it. Uh, are you hearing from your from your members any any concerns or any, any positive or negative feedback? So I guess um, – <clears throat> First, thanks for correcting Fisher Scientific as the awardee. I, I think I got that wrong when I was talking about it before. Um, but uh, I guess just sort of three observations around it. It's like, you know, pi- piloting the e-marketplace, um, you know, consistent with a statute and authorization, that's a good thing. Like you want, I think it creates competitive pressures in the marketplace. People have to think about better ways to do things. And it also you know, pl- provides another platform for people to take a look at and utilize as appropriate, right? <clears throat> but that being said, you know, the report yeah, that said we're not going to test these other two sort of raises some additional questions. Like, so number one, there's an observation in there that, well, if you go to the e-market, e-commerce, which is, again, people, their own websites, posting their own products, you know, or in selling them, whether it's like, you know, Office Depot, Granger, company, and any company like that who sells stuff to to the government. So, and it says, well, if we wanted to do that, when we'd be like creating another whole schedule. So I guess in the services world, you can create another whole schedule to duplicate the schedule. But that, that, that being said, actually, it kind of makes a good point in the sense that okay, what are you going to do with your schedules platform, with your e-systems platform? How do you make that, you know, increase ease of use for the customer, make it more relevant, more intuitive for the customer? I like that word intuitive, you know, like the private commercial platforms are, you, you know, so what are you going to do with the schedules? I think that's actually a question and it's an observation there that in that report that's good. 
uh, you know, that they need to close that loop and think about that, I think. Number two, on the e-procurement, the software, um, you know, if we're going to talk about customer experiences, why wouldn't you at least take a look at commercial solutions from that perspective that might make it even easier for customers to buy? And perhaps they buy through the GSA e-commerce platform, GSA Advantage, or through the commercial uh, platforms that are out there. The systems can help, That the software can help people make good buying decisions. I think that's worth a pilot. You know, you're trying to access the commercial market. That's some, an area where I think GSA needs to take a second look and actually go, again, go, you know, so they should be looking at the schedules from an e-commerce platform perspective. They need to look at uh, the uh, e-procurement model because it can make it the customer experience that much better consistent with the administrator's uh, sort of big picture theme. So, you know, Jason, uh, that was a lot on GSA this week, wasn't it? We did. We, I think I said we could spend the 30 minutes on it. I think we did, but hey, I think, hey they're, well, they're that, important. There's a reason well, why they're important. <laughs> right. Well, you know, again, so I'll have you back towards the end of the year and we'll, maybe we'll make a point not to talk about GSA. Well, no, we can't do that. As no, long as they don't do give it. us too much news, we won't <laughs> right, talk right. about them, right? Yeah, right. But, but that's so. why it's a potpourri. You never know what smell you get. That's right. Exactly. So I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. and You've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.